who take a seat. Um, let me say good evening again. Last week, as Andrew mentioned, we started a new series at our evening services looking at 1 John, and we've called it Confident Joy. Uh, because that's where John wants to leave us, what he wants to leave us with. Be great if, if you've got a Bible near you, if you could open it up again um, at that reading we had from 1 John on page 1,225. I'll just find it as well. There we go. I've got it now. That's good. It's brilliant, isn't it, um, when experts agree with you. Don't you like that? <clears throat> Uh, So someone on the radio says something and you think, I've said that. Uh, It makes me feel like I'm an expert too, all of a sudden, just because they've said something that I've said. So imagine my delight listening to Mark Kermode's film review when I heard him say, The Princess Bride is a great film. One of the best children's films ever made. And I thought, that's what I think. I'm an expert Uh, If you don't know the film, I know I've mentioned it to some of the students before, but if you don't know the film, let me uh, tell you a bit about it. It's about true love. It starts on a farm with Buttercup, uh, the beautiful young, if slightly aloof and superior girl. That's what most girls are kind of like. And Wesley, the handsome but poor farm boy. And Buttercup's really mean to him. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it. As you wish, Wesley says. Buttercup drops two large buckets near him. Farm boy, fill these with water. And all he says is, as you wish. And then we hear the voiceover in the film. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she... Wait, it gets better... And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Buttercups, well, she's melted by this relationship in love. Wesley has no money for marriage. He packs his belongings and leaves to seek his fortune through adventure across the sea. It's a very emotional time for Buttercup, as you can imagine. Um, I fear I'll never see you again. Of course you will, he replies. But what if something happens to you? Hear this now. I will come for you. But how can you be sure? He looks at her and says, this is true love. You think this happens every day? What a brilliant beginning. Any film that starts like that is going to be great. Now, I know it's a fairy tale. I know it's cheesy, romantic slush, but indulge me for a moment. And let me ask you, why do you think children and balding Scotsmen like that kind of stuff? And why do even the most cynical of grown-ups who, who know the pressures and challenge of, challenges of life hear in stories like that echoes of something they still long for? True love. Could it be that what the Bible says about us is true? Uh, that what we heard last week as we started looking at 1 John fits with what we feel. That we're created for relationships. And that at the heart of the universe... Our creator is a loving and personal God who wants to draw us into a life-giving relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. So that's what John, who's writing this letter, is reminding the Christians he's writing to. Uh, Do you remember verse 2 of chapter 1 last week, if you want to have a look at it? Uh, John says this, The life 
has appeared. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. And the reason he's telling us, verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. Here what's being talked about here, a relationship with God that doesn't lead to guilt, but to confident joy. Well, when it comes to the perfect pudding, well, the frozen haute chocolat has got to be the best. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's served in the Serendipity 3 restaurant, New York, of course. It's bulging with top-grade cocoa from 14 different countries. There's 5 grams of edible 24-karat gold in it. Shavings of luxury truffle. It comes in a goblet decorated with a gold band encrusted with one carat diamonds. And you eat it with a golden spoon that's yours to take home with you afterwards. When I read about that in the Times this week, I thought to myself, I'm getting one of those. (laughs) See, a pudding like that, that's the good life, isn't it? And then I read the menu price. $25,000. I am Scottish. (laughs) No way I'm paying that. And actually, I I realized I'm probably not the kind of person who who gets to enjoy something that good. It's miserable, isn't it? And to have something wonderful placed in front of you and then to be told, it's not yours. You don't have that. And that's the other reason John's writing this letter. It's not about expensive puddings. It's it's about the good life that's on offer from God. Because it seems that some people, I I guess you'd have to call them false teachers, have been telling his readers they've not really got it. They're telling genuine Christians they've not really got a relationship with God. We'll we'll pick up what they've been saying as we go through the letter. But uh, but part of it seems to be saying, uh, well, real Christians, if you're a real Christian, you shouldn't struggle with sin. A real Christians need these false teachers, extra spiritual teachings. And real Christians should be in with their special kind of secret group. Have you thought that yourself? You're here and you're a Christian, but you know you struggle with sin and you're concerned. Is this normal? And perhaps there's more that you need, uh, special spiritual insights. Uh, Perhaps you've heard it said that your branch of Christianity only gives you the spiritual basics, if that really. So John's writing to you. Uh, Just flick over the page to chapter 2 and verse 26 and and see what he says. Uh, He says this, verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Actually, that makes even more sense of this letter, doesn't it? When you know John's got that in his mind. All that stuff back in in chapter 1, in that very first verse, where where John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have have touched. You understand what John's saying? He's saying, "Now, now listen to me. When it comes to knowing God... I was one of the people who met him when he came. There was me and the other apostles. If you want to know if you've got a genuine relationship with God, then then listen to our message. Well, that's what the New Testament is. It's the apostolic or the apostles' message. 
And so we come to verse 5 from our reading in chapter 1, and, and here's this message that John wants to pass on to us. Uh, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That's quite a short one, isn't it? What, what's that got to do with relationship? Well, John's telling us something about the essential character of God. If you want to hang out with me, there's lots of things we could do, but there's uh, quite a few things, because of who I am, that we'll never do. If someone tells you I was out with David and we went in a hot air balloon, they're a liar. I'll never do that. If they say David and I went to see Disney Princess on Ice, be very suspicious. (laughs) That's not the kind of thing I'm likely to do. And similarly, if you're claiming that you hang out with God, if you're claiming that you're friends with him, well then you should know there's certain things, because of who God is, that he just won't do. And what is God like? Well, John says, God is light. In him there's no darkness. None. It's a Bible metaphor. It's kind of deliberately ambiguous because it covers a few things. Back in our first reading that Jody read out for us, back in that first reading from Genesis, the very first words God goes on record as saying are, let there be light. As he puts himself center stage in the action of the Bible, he throws the light on and he says, well, that's good. So we're being told something about our creator. Our creator likes things to be seen. He he thinks it's good when stuff's out in the open. And so in the Bible, this image of light also gets used for, for truthfulness. He likes to shine his light so everyone can see the truth. And more than just that, it becomes an image in the Bible of of God's moral perfection. He's pure like light. There's no shadows of corruption in him. And both in Genesis and John's Gospel, God's light seems to be life-giving. So if you're going to spend time with this God, we'll, we'll know this. He doesn't do dishonesty. He won't be divisively secretive. He will never condone hiding moral corruption, your sin. He likes things to be open and seen for what they are. And he loves to give life in unexpected places. And so John tells us about three things that are descriptive of a genuine relationship with this kind of God. It should be a good checklist for us if we're Christians. And, and hopefully it will be helpful if you're, if you're not and beginning to think, Could I trust this God? Could I trust him with my life? And so here's the first thing. Genuine relationship with God looks like, well, it looks like being committed to other Christians. Verses 6 and 7. Just have a look down at verse 7. John says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, and you'd almost expect him to say with God, but he doesn't, does he? He says we have fellowship with one another. A fellowship here carries the idea of a a strong commitment with someone. And notice the kind of people that John's got in mind. They're the kind of people who need the second half of verse 7. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And the way John writes, it's, it's kind of continuous. He's saying Jesus' blood, that death on the cross, goes on purifying us. Oh, those kind of people, they, they don't sound like the spiritual elite, do they? 
they actually sound like the kind of people who when you get to know them, you discover they, they struggle with sin. They need forgiveness every day. They understand what we're being told. If, if you're the kind of Christian who struggles with sin, that's not going to exclude you from a relationship with God. You're actually the kind of Christian that God is committed to hanging out with. Oh, as you spend time with him, the light of his purity will illuminate your sin inevitably. It has to. But it will also illuminate Jesus and assure you of forgiveness. You understand what else we're being told? If you want to be in the place where God is, well, then you need to be committed to ordinary Christians. And loving the members of our church family, meeting up at Sunday AM, at Lighthouse, at services, at caring for each other during the week. And you see why this is a dig at the false teachers. What, what they're doing is, is dividing people. They're, they're trying to produce a spiritual elite. They're, they're taking some people off in secret, into the shadows, and giving them special secret knowledge. Well, that's not what God does. See, God is light. Just look at verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. We don't live by the truth. I suppose there's a question for us. So what does a personal relationship with God look like? Well, in part, it looks like being committed, not just to Christian friends, because anyone can make time for their friends. It's, it's being committed to Christian brothers and sisters, even the ones that wind you up. So let me ask you, have you been feeling a little distant from God recently? Well, it's right to pray and, and read your Bible, but it, it might be that you need to put your shoes on as well and start, walk with God, start walking with God in the light by being committed to caring for other Christians. I suppose there's a warning here for us too. I don't really think that we've got false teachers quite like they did in John's day, but we need to watch for similar attitudes in ourselves. See, for me, I think uh, one of the most disheartening phrases I I hear at Christchurch is when people say things like, oh yes, I come to Fullwood, but I'm not really Fullwood. Now, whatever reason that's for, and maybe you find yourself saying that or thinking that, uh, for whatever reason it's for, whether it's inverse snobbery against the middle classes, whether it's because you, you don't like the choice of music or songs, just think carefully about what you're doing. You don't have to be middle class to be here. You don't have to like the music I've chosen tonight. You can even criticize it. Many of you do frequently. Show me any family where everyone likes all the same music. But don't start to talk in a way that begins to separate you and your friends from the rest of us. Don't form yourself into a group that starts to define itself as, but we're different. Because it's a small jump from we're different to we're better. And if you start to separate yourself off, John says you're not just walking away from others, you're walking away from God and off into darkness. See, a genuine relationship with God looks like being committed to other Christians. Well, here's the second thing. A genuine relationship with God looks like it looks like being honest about our sin. That's verses 8 to 10. I read an article about boldness during the week. It made me smile. Uh, the writer says this, Boldness is a great gift from the Lord. I was intrigued already. 
It's a great gift from the Lord in that it imposes a certain dignity on the ageing process by cutting off the various less dignified options. For example, ponytails, which shouldn't be sported by anyone over 30, and mullets, which frankly shouldn't be sported by anyone. (laughs) Of course, there are those, even Christians, who fight against this divinely imposed dignity. Dreadful toupees abound and the ubiquitous comb over sweep. The false notion that if you have six hairs to stretch across the barren landscape of your shiny head, nobody will notice that you've gone completely bald. (laughs) Or perhaps the false belief that in the country of the bald, the one-haired man is king. I read it, and I felt the truth breaking through my self-deception, because I have to admit, I still feel that I've got a reasonable head of hair. I don't, do I? Look, self-deception about hair loss is a minor thing, so keep your toupees on and come back to the passage Because John's got a more serious one to show us. So you look at verse 8 and and verse 10, and you begin to understand what John's getting at. See, people claiming claiming and offering a kind of Christian experience where you won't struggle with sin anymore. See, I don't think there's any genuine Christian for whom that doesn't sound appealing. To live consistently the way God wants you to. To not have to deal with regret or guilt over failures. When John says there's something you need to know about people who claim or offer to live that kind of life, they're liars. They just don't do it. And John says, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't buy into that way of thinking. And he tells us what happens to people who do. At verse 8, they end up living with massive self-deception kidding themselves on that they don't sin. And and verse 10, it's even more serious than that. If we claim to be without sin, we make God out to be a liar. And his word is no place in our lives. Because God says that we do sin. And some of us tonight, I'm sure, are trying to convince ourselves that a particular course of action that God says is wrong is not really sin in your case. You're calling God a liar. You need to stop that. So God has promised to put an end to sin, but that won't finally happen until his new creation. In the meantime, sin will be a constant battle. So so how do we deal with it? If we're in a relationship with a God, a God whose moral purity is like light. Well, it's verse 9, isn't it? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's kind of what you'd expect with God. You, you bring it out into the open with him and find his light gives unexpected new life. You see what we're being told? If you're a Christian, you can be confident about this relationship, not because you don't sin, but because he forgives honest confession. You can be confident about this relationship not because you've done enough to be acceptable but because he purifies you from everything that makes you unacceptable. So I guess one question for us might be how confident a Christian are you becoming? Since last year have you become, do you think, more confident that you're accepted by God? Are you worrying less what other people think of you because you know that God loves and accepts you? Are you experiencing a little more of the joy that John talks about or are you finding yourself more frustrated and bitter, regularly fed up with other people? 
Are you able to maintain some perspective on your failures? Because you know that God has forgiven you. If you've not, then a good thing to think through is, am I being honest with God about my sin? Am I confessing when I do wrong? Because if you are, he will forgive you and make you acceptable. And here's a thought for you if you're not a Christian. Uh, Perhaps you've been uh, thinking things through for a while. Maybe you've been talking to someone about Christianity. Maybe coming along to Christianity explored. Uh, And maybe your thoughts have changed. Maybe they've changed from, I don't really believe any of this. To, I think it's probably true, but I don't think I could be a Christian. Maybe that's a change you felt in your, your thinking. I've talked with people who've said things like, well, I can't become a Christian because I, I just couldn't live a good enough life. Well, you understand what, from this what God's saying to you. He's not asking whether you can live a good life. He's, he's asking if you'd start to walk with him. Honestly accepting you're a sinner, trusting him alone to forgive you, and to start to reshape your living in light of that. See, if you can do that, you should become a Christian. Well, here's the last thing, the last mark of a genuine relationship with God uh, from this part of John. What a genuine relationship with God looks like, well, it looks like remembering why Jesus is all we need. Uh, From chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. A genuine relationship with God looks like remembering why Jesus is, is all we need. Don't misunderstand, John. He's not saying carry on sinning, and we'll think about that over the next few weeks, but he's getting at how you deal with sin. Do you need something more than Jesus? Do you you need to head off and get a spiritual high somewhere else? Um, Most of you know that I got got married in the summer, married to Julia, and getting married has changed my life in a number of ways. Uh, One of the ways it's changed has been the introduction of a new question into our home. It's the, why would we need that? question. So I'll sometimes say things like, wouldn't it be great to have an Apple Mac notebook computer? To which Julia replies, why would we need that? I've not thought of a good answer yet. We've got a good computer already. But that's kind of what John's doing here. But these Christians are being told, we've got something to help you deal with sin. And John's writing and asking, well, why would you need that? And don't you understand who Jesus is? Uh, Don't you understand what he's done? And he's been hinting at it as we've gone along. Now in in chapter 2, verse 1, John joins the dots for us. You see what he writes? Uh, But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's a courtroom scene John paints for us. You know what it's like when we sin, we often feel guilty, don't we? And we have the experience of feeling like we're on trial. We're in the dock accused and we have no excuse. We know God's moral purity. He will not condone sin. And we're caught. We're guilty as charged. You see what John's telling us? Every time we rightly feel guilty, every time we're in that courtroom, we have someone who speaks for us. Someone who comes to our defense. Someone who has the moral integrity to get a hearing from God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And you see the content of his defense on our behalf in verse 2? It's what we've been hearing. 
It's not our goodness. It's his. It's not our actions. It's his own. Verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. The righteous one died in your place on the cross. Uh, The word that's translated atoning sacrifice is is a word that means his death cleans away all your sin and turns away the anger God should show us. See, if you're a Christian, the court has sat to consider your life. And Jesus has presented his defense. Everything is paid for. So God continually hands down the only verdict that is just for you, if it's all been paid for. And because of Jesus, it's not just that you can walk out of the courtroom. You can walk out in a relationship with the judge starting to walk in the light with him. See, the relationship with God is on because of Jesus. Why would you need anything else? So I suppose the question for us, I suppose there's a question for us, and it's this, if you're a Christian, are you feeling in the courtroom? Are you feeling guilty about something? Well, listen to me. Jesus Christ always speaks in your defense. He died for you, dealing with all your sin. You don't need anything else. You can admit your guilt and still walk free. It's time to leave the courtroom. And there's a flip side, I guess, as well. It it might be that there's been another Christian who's hurt you, let you down badly, and you've just not forgiven them. Jesus speaks in their defense. He has paid for their sin and sets them free. You're not to try and keep them in the courtroom. You're not to try and keep them feeling guilty when he sets them free. Now perhaps for some of you that's something you need to sort out. And let me ask you as well, if you're, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, perhaps actually you come tonight and, and you're feeling guilty too. Maybe it's about something that no one else knows about it, but you know it. You feel accused and guilty. You know you had no excuse for it. You know you're in the dock, accused and without excuse. And you're thinking, wouldn't it be good to have someone like Jesus who'd speak for me? See, look at verse 2 again. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. His death is enough for you too. You can leave the courtroom tonight if you'll trust him. Well, in The Princess Bride, Wesley didn't reach his destination. His ship's attacked by the dread pirate Roberts who never left captives alive. It's very sad. Buttercup hears the news and is distraught. She eventually agrees to marry the prince who is the villain. But before she does... Wesley comes for her. And he says, I I told you I would come for you. Why didn't you wait for me? And she says, well, you were dead. And then he says, death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. Now that's a fairy tale. But this good news message about Jesus is true. And it's much, much more wonderful. 
Jesus Christ has gone through death for you and for me. It didn't delay his relationship with us. It's how he has secured it for us. You don't need anything else except him for confident joy. Well, let's pray together.